2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail.
0: My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're, uh, I guess this is our first uh, batch of from the mailbag since the holiday. Yeah, how was your holiday, Joe?
1: Oh, it was good. How was yours? Yeah, it was it was good. Laid back, you know. I got to got yeah. to do a lot more uh, miniature painting than usual. Got to do a little uh, uh, writing just for fun, so that was nice.
0: What what miniatures did you paint?
1: Ooh, let's see. I did, a, oh, I did 3CPO and R2-D2. 3CPO? Is that like did a off oh, I'm sorry. A, <laughs> r2 and cpo we'll, we'll just go with Cepio. their short names yeah god i love uh, cpo <laughs> uh yeah no i know i painted those guys up i got those for christmas as a gift uh, along Aww. with their little uh, pot that they land
0: in oh that's wonderful well are you uh, ready to jump right into these messages let's do it what do we got what is the the mailbot Carney have for us today It looks like this first one is about our episode on holiday inventions. I think these were mostly inventions related to Christmas trees. This comes from Brett. Brett says, hello, gentlemen. I was recently listening to your holiday inventions episode when you were discussing a particular antique tree ornament. It was one that bubbled when it got warm from a light. I think it was Joe who mentioned that it was filled with methylene chloride. This got my attention. As an organic chemist, we use methylene chloride, or dichloromethane, DCM, daily. DCM is an ideal solvent for many organic compounds. Its volatility, and hence low boiling point, and ability to dissolve many organic compounds make uh, readily make it ideal for our line of work. To help convince ourselves that we were able to synthesize a desired compound, we used instruments such as nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, to help determine a structure's identity. DCM easily is removed under reduced pressure, under vacuum, therefore reducing the probability of contaminating and maybe, uh, maybe overlapping with the desired peak. DCM feels very cool when it touches your glove, quickly penetrating it and entering through the skin providing a tingling sensation, though we try not to let this happen. One thing I find amazing uh, of a solvent such as DCM is its weight. Having two chlorine atoms attached to a carbon center, you can feel the weight difference compared to something like isopropanol per volume. And an even heavier solvent that is closely related is chloroform, basically DCM with an extra chlorine, and you can really feel the effect of the extra chlorine Uh, The effect of one atom difference. It always fascinates me where a conversation will go during your episodes. Organic synthesis during a holiday inventions episode. Why not? That is the power of words and thought. Thank you as always for providing such thought provoking content. Happy holidays, Brett. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Brett, the power of words and thought. I have never thought to, uh, to summarize our ideology that way. Maybe that's what it is. Right, we just follow the words and the thought, but uh, yeah I appreciate hearing
1: from Brett here this this listener knows their chemistry this yeah. this was a delightful email all right here's another one this one comes to us from Kate, and it goes as follows: Dear Robert and Joe, I just finished listening to your episode on heavy water and I was really excited to hear you mention the kinetic isotope effect I am a research scientist and our lab uses D2O frequently um, in uh, our study of enzyme mechanics. One of the truly amazing aspects of the enzyme chemistry is the coupling of the movements of electrons and protons, hydrogen atoms without their electrons. The coupling has the effect of lowering the activation energy of key steps, helping reactions occur faster and more efficiently. By observing enzyme turnover in H2O and D2O, this kind of coupling can be identified. This work is highly relevant both to biochemical research and to the design of new catalysts. Right now, chemists are working on engineering this kind of step into synthetic catalysts, and understanding how enzymes work helps guide their work. Our lab also uses aquaregia, as we do work with nanoparticles as well, and aquaregia is the only thing that will clean our glassware. So this episode (laughs) hit hit a double when it comes to my lab experience. Thanks for all the fun and informative episodes. You guys keep me company when I am doing the routine upkeep of laboratory life. All the best, Kate. P.S., you guys should think about doing an episode on gold nanoparticles. They have really interesting modern applications as well as a fascinating historical aspect. The red color in some stained glass was prepared from a mix of gold salts and tannic acid, which it turns out is a way to make nanoclusters of gold that I used in my graduate work. Oh, interesting. Listeners bring in the chemistry today. Bring in the gold, as it it were. Yeah, I I can't remember if we've done a a designated episode on gold before. It seems like we should have, maybe
0: we did and I forgot it, but either way we should do it. I mean, the show's been going a long time, but uh, yeah, I often wonder when I want to do a new episode, I'm like, Oh, was this done like eight years ago or something? Uh, but, <laughs> It'd be hard know, it to figure it out. It doesn't even point. matter if it
1: was done eight years ago. You know, it's like there's going to be enough new stuff to cover. That's always my approach. It's like, if we did it before, it's probably worth doing again. Cause either there's new science, there are new wrinkles there's stuff that we didn't find before. Uh, you know it 's it's, it's similar to the whole uh, situation. I remember early on when these podcasts were just starting out under the House of Works banner. everyone was sort of hyper uh, alert to like, "Oh, should we cover this subject because stuff you should know just did this subject or history <laughs> did just did this subject and it took a while for everyone to realize of course we 're going to cover subjects that other people have covered yeah. sometimes we 're going to hit the lotto and they 're going to publish in the same week without anybody knowing about them, but everybody 's going to bring their own spin to the to the information, you know, they're going to find different areas to focus on and have uh, different um, uh, different side thoughts on what they're discussing.
0: Yeah, I know that's happened to us before where we published an episode on something the same week that Josh and Chuck did. And then people ask us, did you do this on purpose? (laughs) Why would we do that on (laughs) purpose? (laughs) No, we just just... we just don't know what the other shows are doing. We don't like share calendars or anything. Yeah, but we should win something when we line up like that. Okay, this next message is about fingernails. It comes from Bryn. Bryn says, Hi, Robert and Joe. First of all, I love the podcast and listen to it constantly while working on art projects, doing chores, playing video games, or just driving around. I find every topic fascinating and love to learn new things from you guys every day. You're both a delight to listen to. Thank you, Bryn. If I remember correctly, in one of the fingernail episodes, Robert mentioned the idea of a superhero who uses their fingernails as a way of measuring how much they have used their powers. While I don't have an example of a hero, I do have an example of a villain. And, uh... Brenna, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong. I think this was not in our original fingernail episodes, but it was in – it was response to another listener mail that brought up a story from uh, – I believe it was from Maori legend about a god oh, okay. or a, a figure who uses their fingernails to, to keep a fire going.
1: Yes, yeah. And I just said, well, that would be a great sort of uh, visual um, thing to work with in a, in a, in a modern superhero tale.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So Bryn goes on and says, warning fingernail trauma ahead, but it's just like one paragraph. I was recently reading a Japanese manga called Chainsaw Man, and in one of the story arcs, a villain appears who has made a pact with a demon. For every time she wants to use the power of the demon, she must sacrifice one fingernail. I thought it was very interesting to have the limitations of a power be the amount of fingernails you have and the amount of time it would take for them to grow back. This character isn't a very prominent one, but the moment I saw her, I thought of your show. Anyway, thank you for all you do. Bren. Interesting. I, 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 I gotta look up Chainsaw Man. I'm hooked by the title alone.
1: I, I like that. I, I'm assuming it's like Chainsaw Man has like some chainsaw attributes, but the, the vision of it that I would I would hope for one that I kind of I, I would idly think about in the past was like, what if you had a person or an entity that was made entirely out of chainsaws, but not not the like engine of the chainsaw but just like the intangibleness of the chainsaw you know like there's something to a chainsaw that is beyond like any specific part of it it is just like the roaring gears of the
0: thing yeah. Well, in like a Gnostic sense, the same way how like God can have different emanations of qualities that are themselves creators of planes of existence. The chainsaw can produce divine emanations. Yeah. So there's like a quality of chainsaw-ness that is its own deity. And I got to say, I just looked up Chainsaw Man, and what I like about Chainsaw Man, having never seen him before, is he doesn't just have chainsaws for hands. He also has a chainsaw for a head. That's a good touch.
1: Oh, I'm looking at it now as well. And yes, this is solid. I, um, I approve this message.
0: If it had just been hands, I don't know if I would have been with it. But the head, the head thing seals the deal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's another one for us. This one comes to us from Raphael, and uh, it has to do with our episodes on spinning. Dear Robert and Joe. Thank you for your amazing podcast. Every week, I look forward to your unique discussions connecting science, culture, and history. As a professional scientist, maintaining my sense of wonder and curiosity about the world is very important in my career, and you help stretch the boundaries of my imagination far outside my area of expertise. After listening for several years, I am finally taking the plunge on writing in after Robert's call for comments on the utility of spinning in combat situations. My wife and I have participated in combat sports or practiced martial arts for most of our lives, though having trained with truly dedicated professional instructors and Olympic medalists, we cannot think of ourselves as anything more than enthusiastic amateurs. What perspective I cannot offer you in depth, I can offer you in breadth of experience." I asked your question about spinning in combat on our weekly Zoom call with two of our close friends who are also experienced martial artists. Between the four of us, we have 70 plus years of experience across a diverse set of martial arts and combat sports. Initial reactions to the idea of spinning strikes in combat were mixed to incredulous. After some discussion, our general consensus was that spinning does have combat utility, but not in the ways presented in many films and video games. Before I get much further, I will point out something that may seem obvious. When evaluating anything in martial arts or self-defense, the effectiveness of any particular technique is always dependent on the specific context in which it is used— Particularly in martial arts and sports, that includes competitive sparring, Uh, the rules and restrictions in place for safety and that define the scoring system will heavily influence the combat style and what is considered to be effective. This is certainly the case in competition Taekwondo, which seems like one of the uh, modern martial arts that employs the most spinning strikes. Thankfully, even modern MMA includes rules that prohibit many of the most effective and damaging attacks that would in reality be the best survival options in a lethal self-defense situation. Modern combat sports also generally prohibit the best self-defense techniques of all, running away as fast as possible. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. That would be interesting if that was always an option, you know?
0: Right. If that was like a strategy you could deploy in the ring. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, he's trying (laughs) to... He's trying to run away. <laughs> I don't know how that works. but Back to the outcome of our
1: conversation. We all agreed that full spinning strikes used at longer fighting distances, the kind of moves you mentioned on the show, are a pretty bad idea in most one-on-one combat. Spinning punches and kicks can generate significant power but require you to sacrifice balance, stable footing, and present your back. If initiated at standard kicking and punching ranges, they are easily anticipated and therefore countered. Spinning kicks in particular also require a high level of skill, athleticism, and flexibility. A martial artist can achieve the same level of striking power with none of the drawbacks using half turns instead of full rotations. Many attacks that appear to be spins are actually multiple half-turn strikes in sequence. There are situations, such as the one uh, represented in the video of Joaquin Buckley's competition knockout kick, where a spinning move can help you escape a bad situation or attack from an unexpected angle. Someone with sufficient skill might use spinning strikes effectively in the right circumstances, but such instances seem like exceptions that prove the rule. And they go on to uh, to share some more details uh, that we don't have time to get into here. But basically getting uh, into, say, spotting techniques that are a part of everyday training exercises, just how you how you utilize a uh, spin. Uh, but they continue. Quote, everyone also agreed spins are very useful in multiple attacker situations. When facing multiple opponents, it is all about maintaining mobility and preventing yourself from being overwhelmed. Spins are a useful way to dodge, reorient in a new direction, and quickly spot other opponents or escape opportunities. If you want to see this in action, just watch a basketball, American football, or rugby game. Spins are frequently employed to break past opponents or dodge tackles. The utility of spinning to deal with multiple attackers applies to armed as well as unarmed combat. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the katana and shortstaff exercises I know include spinning footwork based on the assumption that you have to quickly reorient to deal with armed attackers from multiple directions. The closest thing to a Tasmanian devil-style spin is a stationary 360-degree spin combined with a horizontal sword slash performed at the very end of some sword kata. My understanding is that this is not meant as any sort of directed attack. Rather, you are checking every direction for new opponents after you think you have to your initial attackers the sword slash is meant to give any new attacker a reason to pause and maybe buy yourself a potentially life-saving moment in the end we concluded that the obvious athleticism and easily visualized nature of spinning punches and kicks is the reason that we see so many of them in movies and video games just like the reverse grip use on long blades and punching armored opponents with unprotected fists spinning strikes (laughs) are dramatic and fun to watch but probably best left on the screen Anyway, I hope this email provides a useful perspective. Our group certainly had fun discussing the topic. Thanks for all your great episodes, Raphael.
0: Wow, that was some depth, Rafael. Yeah, that was great.
1: And like I said, we didn't even have time to read all of that one but um, on the, the show here. But uh, yeah, I greatly appreciate folks chiming in with their expertise, uh, in this case,
0: dealing with spinning in combat.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
2: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic. And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: All right, this next message comes to us from Pearl. Also about spinning, Pearl says, hi, Robert and Joe. In your episodes about spinning, you mentioned spinning in ballet, and separately, the feeling of being entranced as a spectator of spinning persons, especially the Sufi dervishes. I wanted to bring up a famous piece of ballet spinning lore that will bridge these two ideas, where the trance state induced by watching someone spin actually moves the story forward. It's also explored in Aronofsky's Black Swan, but since the whole film is one long bad trip, this particular bit of psychedelic spinning gets lost in the mix. In the classical ballet Swan Lake, a crucial moment in the story comes at the end of the second act when the deceptive black swan, Odile, secures the devotion of Prince Siegfried. She accomplishes this by executing a series of consecutive whirling movements on point over the course of 32 counts of feverish music known as the black swan coda, at the rate of at least one spin per count. In modern productions, this almost always comes in the form of 32 fouette turns, French for whip, a type of pirouette in which one leg is extended out to the side and pulled back into the body quickly creating the force necessary to whip the body around on its axis. This movement is done without ever placing the working leg, the one doing the whipping motion, back down on the ground, enabling the dancer to execute many more turns than would otherwise be possible within the same amount of music. The prince and the audience is so entranced by the spinning that all doubts about Odile are dispelled and he commits his heart to her. Now, actually, believing that she and the white swan, Odette, are one and the same. After all, how many enchanted mutant swan women could there possibly be within one forest? (laughs) The same idea has been used in other ballets, and super-quick, super-athletic pirouettes are standard practice for today's dancers. But watching the Black Swan coda is still a mind-altering experience, even for seasoned patrons of the art form. I tried and failed to keep this letter short. Ballet is a world full of weird, morbid fairy tales and bizarre physical feats that need a lot of explaining— My personal connection is that I've been dancing ballet as a hobby since age three, including several years on point. That's almost three decades, and I'm still fascinated. Love the show, Pearl. And then Pearl attaches a uh, a video that we can watch. Very cool. Yeah, in this video, the the turns go on and on. It's unbelievable.
1: All right, here's another one for us. This is perfect because it also deals with Russian storytelling. Uh, this one concerns the leshy. Dear Robert and Joe, hope you're enjoying the holiday season. I'm a tremendous fan of your show. The first episode I ever listened to was about Jupiter's moons a few years back. I was hooked after that. I so enjoyed the episode about the leshy. It inspired my husband and I to watch the folktale season of The Storyteller. So great. I waited until closer to Christmas to check out the Russian movie you mentioned, Frosty, a.k.a. Jack Frost, a.k.a. Morozko. This movie is a trip. I wasn't sure what to make of it at first, but the more it sinks in, the more I realize I love this movie. It is so colorful and imaginative. The characters, songs, costumes, and effects are all so great. I definitely recommend the original Russian movie with English subtitles. Dubbing just won't do, as you won't get to hear the tiny soft voice of Nastia or Ivanuska's um, uh, Hey, Ilyu's, I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Uh, Liyu song? <laughs> the Baba Yaga kills it with her costume and crazy faces and laughs. Father Frost's costume is out of this world. The stepsister and, uh, uh, and uh, quarter are also hilarious. I think some may not understand this movie, but if you think of it as a Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland from another culture, it makes sense. I think this is one of my new winter classics. Also, I often think of the, the Leshy story about the guy who brought the Leshy to a wedding as a guest. So ridiculous. I crack myself up just thinking about it.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, that was a good one.
1: That was. It's just I love the um, the, the, yeah, the weirdness of so many of those tales. And, and again, uh, yeah, if, if anyone's interested, go back. Uh, I mentioned uh, the author who has compiled so many of these stories, and uh, that book is tremendous. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they continue. Um, Thank you so much for the wonderful podcast. It has ignited so many fun adventures and explorations for me. Also, y'all have the best podcast voices, just saying, happy holidays, Leslie in Seattle. Uh,
0: Illegal flattery.
1: Uh, well, I'm glad uh, you enjoyed Jack Frost, uh, because, again, it is a beautiful movie. Most, I feel like, well, maybe not most, but a lot of people in the U.S. are probably only familiar with it from Mystery Science Theater 3000, but it is, in and of itself, just a beautifully made film with a lot of wonderful stuff in it. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend folks check it out during the uh, winter months.
0: I, I agree. Yeah, um, it it is both funny, but also, uh, you know, if if you put yourself in the right mindset and experience it as a... As a, as a fresh fallen snow, you know, like as sort of like a, a new babe in the world, it's, it's quite wonderful.
1: Not a princess, a
0: queen. <laughs> and Leslie, thank you. Yeah, far too kind. Uh, I thought maybe we should wrap up here with a a question that may be relevant because I can't imagine we will stop using this point of comparison as we go on. So Taylor writing in about weird house cinema, Taylor says, Hey, Rob and Joe, Taylor from Salt Lake here with a simple question. Could you define poochie for me? This term has come (laughs) up several times in recent episodes, referencing both Sonic the Hedgehog and the obnoxious teenage son from Ghost in the Machine. I don't know if it's a generational gap or a cultural moment I missed. I'm 25, but I've never heard this word, and I now have burning curiosity to be looped in. Since I don't know how it's spelled in this context, Urban Dictionary has been less than helpful. So maybe you can help a brother out with a little flaming barrel etymology. As always, thanks for doing what you do and filling the duller moments of my days with weird, thoughtful, edifying ear candy. I'm really enjoying Weird House Cinema and the recent diversity of content. All the best, Taylor. Uh, yeah, I, I figure this is probably worth explaining for other listeners who are not as deeply rooted in Simpsons lore as we are, because I, I think sometimes I just, you know, like Shakespeare could assume that everybody in his audience knew the Bible, so they all had the same point of comparison. I tend to assume everybody knows The Simpsons, but I know that's not true. Uh, so this is from The Simpsons. Poochie. I think Poochie is kind of one of the patron saints of our era and history. Poochie is a soulless media corporation's attempt to lure in young (laughs) viewers with a cringe-inducing simulacrum of youth rebellion and subculture. Would you say that's a fair definition? Yes. Yeah, I think that that sums it up nicely. Uh, So – but. it, well, sorry. What I was just going to say, he's the he's the product
1: of pure corporate groupthink. Yes, uh, in, in terms of of trying to inject uh, strategy into a uh, creative endeavor.
0: Yeah, so he's more than one thing at once. I, I want to get give you the full spectrum of Poochie If you've never seen the episode, so in the Simpsons, the context is that the children can always be found watching the Itchy and Scratchy show. It is a classic of sadistic cartoon violence between a mouse and a cat. So, you know, Bart and Lisa on Saturday morning, will watch itchy throw scratchy into a volcano and they laugh and all is right with the world. But in the Poochie episode, the corporation that owns itchy and scratchy decides that the show needs a new character to boost ratings. So over the objections of the show's writers who are, they are themselves portrayed as like pompous and lazy. Um, But these meddling executives come in and mandate that the show must now incorporate a new dog character who is just, you know, a sort of a very uncool business person's idea of subcultures, but all different subcultures thrown into a blender. So he's a leather jacket wearing electric guitar playing grunge hip hop surfer in sunglasses and a backwards cap. Oh, also somehow Homer ends up being the voice of Poochie within the show. I think that they have like a big casting thing and he gets it for yeah. some reason. Uh, but then when the episode with Poochie debuts and the kids watch it, Poochie is rightly despised by all uh, and is promptly written off the show. There's this great scene where they, uh, like somebody dubs in a line that says like, I must go. My planet needs me. And then they just lift the cell out of the animation frame. <laughs> uh, and then we get like a, a subtitle saying that Poochie died on the way back to his home planet, I think we had never been told before that he was from another planet. Um, but see, so yeah, that's what Poochie is. Poochie is actually several different emblems at once. In one aspect, Pucci is a corporate executive's horribly confused and inauthentic understanding of what the kids are into these days. And so Pucci is, in that respect, a very poor and cringe-inducing attempt to pander. But I would say Pucci also represents the never-ending desire of business executives who own creative properties to interfere in the creative processes of their employees with the near guarantee of disastrous effects. So in that later sense, I think to broaden the scope beyond just cartoons and media products, I'd say that every time your boss tells you to try doing x and you already know that it's a terrible idea because you know what you do day in and day out but your boss doesn't know but you have to do it anyway because your boss said so and then sure enough x proves to be a failure and a terrible idea x is a poochie that's a poochie situation
1: that that that's absolutely yet i think you've summarized poochie um The the episode, if anybody wants to see it, it is specifically the the fourteenth episode of season eight, and it's titled "The Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie Show."
0: I'd say I think about Poochie at least once a day. I mean, (laughs) Poochie's like (laughs) uh, Poochie's as much of a figure as like an eleventh century Frenchman might think of the the Mother Mary, you know. Uh,
1: I I I maybe don't think about him as much, but if I get enough work emails. Uh, covering the right topics in the course of a day, I certainly think about Poochie and start uh, thinking back and uh, to it. And I can't remember. I think I think I watched it with the family. I think I showed it to the boy recently. Um,
0: <laughs> in Poochie's debut episode, he introduces himself with a Poochie rap, and then he tells the children to always recycle. Yes, <laughs>
1: <laughs> always recycle to the extreme. Busted! The extre- I've, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he's like playing a, a guitar and, and dribbling a basketball. I think all at the same time. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, should that uh, should that wrap it up for today? I think
1: so. I mean, if you want to if you want to learn more about Poochie, you have your homework. Yeah, you know yeah. which episode is, episode to go watch. And he's only in that episode. I like that they've stuck to their guns. Mm-hmm. I'm, I believe I'm pretty sure of that I'm, Seth will inter- interrupt us here and let us know if we're wrong. But I think they've stuck to their guns and never brought Poochie back, which is the way it should be.
0: He truly died on the way back to his home planet. Oh, but also, th- this should be a good prompt for Listener Mail. I mean, in the in the broader understanding of Poochie, what's your Poochie? What's the Poochie in your life?
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard to find a pure Poochie. Like, Poochie exists because we need, like, the purity of the idea to take on um, a corporeal form. Uh, yeah. So it, I, I feel like it's actually a little difficult to find wild poochies out there you know you can find just aspects of poochie and other things generally but yeah i'm i'm open to correction on this if you have some examples of of poochie uh pure poochie or
0: poochiness or just slight poochiness in the world uh let me know i think when we made the sonic the hedgehog comparison it was not in this broader understanding of the way poochie fits into uh, i don't know dynamics of creative projects and things that are owned by corporations in that sense, Sonic the Hedgehog is more of a Poochie in that he's just like a cartoon animal who's got an attitude uh, and was yeah. mandated that he should have an attitude by some business owner.
1: Right, right. Yeah, so even Sonic is not a pure example of Poochie. Even the kid in um, uh, in Ghost in the Machine is, not, is maybe not pure Poochie, but he's as close to pure Poochie
0: as I've ever seen uh, in cinema. Uncut Poochie. Doop, 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 doop. Oh, well, we just got a notification from Seth, who is even more of a Simpsons nerd than we are, uh, that Poochie has in fact returned on multiple occasions in The Simpsons, but always only as like a, a punchline cameo. So okay. Well, that, not, that's good to know. Yeah. Not as like, hey, here's another whole Poochie episode.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it looks like Carney the Mailbot is shutting down. For this episode, but we will revive him next week and we will share more listener mail uh, with anyone who's willing to listen to them. And if you want to uh, yeah, write into us, let let us know, respond to stuff we talked about in this episode, uh, respond to current and past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind or Weird House Cinema. Uh, We we would love to hear from you. Uh, In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind
0: feed, just rate, review and subscribe wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer and Simpsons expert, Seth Nicholas-Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this show or any other, with a suggestion for a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production
2: of iHeartRadio. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories.